Our episodes deal with serious and often distressing incidents and may not be suitable for children. If you struggle with addiction, feel depressed or have suicidal thoughts and you need support, please contact your local crisis centre or reach out to a friend to ask for help. In February 1996, the lead singer of Alice in Chains, Lane Staley, told Rolling Stone magazine he was disturbed by the rampant rumours of his high drug use and his battle with addiction. He read stories online that he had AIDS, or even worse, he was dead. When he was in San Francisco at Lollapalooza, he said a girl walked up to him and stopped like she'd seen a ghost and said, You're not dead! And he replied, No, you're right. Wow. However, less than seven years later, his life would take a deadly turn. In 2002, the once vibrant singer was now just a shell of a man. His body emaciated by drugs, he had become a virtual recluse. In 2002, the singer's accountants noticed there had been no bank activity on Lane Staley's accounts for weeks and had become deeply concerned. On April 19th, his mother went to his condo. When she went to the third floor, she found her son's mail stacked up and could hear his cat, Zadie, meowing on the other side of his door. She immediately called the police, and at 5.50pm, they kicked down his locked door and found the rock star's 86-pound body lying dead on the couch. After an autopsy, it was determined that sadly, Lane Staley had been dead for nearly two weeks and he likely died of an overdose of heroin and cocaine on April the 5th. Join us on a supernatural journey as we tour the musical history of Alice in Chains and their charismatic lead singer. We investigate the facts behind his untimely death and his backstage exit to the afterlife. This is Death by Misadventure. Staley was born in Kirkland, Washington on August 22, 1967, under the zodiac sign of Leo. He was the firstborn son of Phil and Nancy Staley. Growing up, he was a quiet boy who was sweet and shy. Lane loved music, and by the age of two, his favorite song was Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. At the age of three, Lane joined a little rhythm band in Bellevue, where he was the youngest in the group, and his love of music grew. However, his home life was far from happy, and by the time Lane turned seven, his parents divorced. His father, who suffered from addiction, left the home abruptly, and soon his mom would marry his stepfather, Jim Elmer. When he turned nine, Lane wrote down in his Dr. Seuss book, All About Me, that he wanted to be a singer. By the time he was in fifth grade, he borrowed his Uncle Bob's trumpet, and later a family friend loaned him a drum set. When he turned 12, he changed his name to Thomas, because he admired Tommy Lee from Motley Crue, and he wanted to be a rock star. In 
By 1984, Lane joined the glam metal band Sleaze after his stepbrother Ken recommended he audition for the band as their new lead singer. Hesitant at first, Ken encouraged him to try out, and they headed over to drummer James Bergstrom's house. The band was blown away by Lane's vocals, despite him being really shy, but the grain of his voice and soul was there. He was the seventh singer to try out, and Staley shut down the auditions with his unique sound, and Sleaze had found their new lead singer. The first song that Sleaze played with Lane as their new lead singer was Looks That Kill by Motley Crue, and it was at that moment the band knew instantly they were on to something. However, they would go through several lineup changes to perfect their sound, and they even discussed changing the band name. Guitarist Zoli was the first to leave and was quickly replaced by Chris Markham. At some point, Bacalus temporarily left Sleaze to jam with another band, and Staley invited his friend Nick Pollock to play guitar. In 1986, shortly after Bacalus rejoined the band, he had a conversation with his buddy Russ, the lead singer of Slaughterhouse-Five. One of their backstage passes said, Welcome to Wonderland, and they started talking about that being a reference to Alice in Wonderland, until Russ said, Why don't you change your band name to Alice in Chains? Bacalus thought the name was cool and brought it up to his sleaze bandmates, and everyone liked it, so they decided to change the name of the band. However, the new lineup would be short-lived. In 1987, fate would step in when Lane met future guitarist Jerry Cantrell at a party in Seattle while working at Music Bank Studios. After the devastating loss of his mother, Cantrell was homeless after being kicked out of his family home. So Lane invited Jerry to live with him at the Music Bank Studios. The two became fast friends, and they lived as roommates for over a year in the funky rehearsal space they shared. It was a huge warehouse that had 50 different rooms. The place was open 24 hours a day with plenty of girls hanging out, beer and drugs everywhere, and it was a place where musicians came to party and rehearse. Alice in Chains soon disbanded, and Staley decided to join a funk band. Cantrell's band, Diamond Lie, also split, and he wanted to form a new group. Staley gave him the phone number of Melinda Starr, the girlfriend of drummer Sean Kinney, so they could connect and talk music. Kinney went to Music Bank and listened to Cantrell's demos. He suggested adding Mike Starr on bass who Cantrell already knew and had previously played in a band with him called Gypsy Rose. Kenny mentioned that his girlfriend was actually Mike Starr's sister and that he had been playing in bands with her brother since they were little kids. A few days later, Mike started jamming with them at Music Bank, but they still didn't have a lead singer. Lane agreed to sing with the guys, but he refused to commit full-time to the new band. So Cantrell and Starr pulled a stunt on Staley. They placed a lead singer wanted ad in the local Seattle newspaper and purposely auditioned the worst singers they could find, including a male stripper. 
They wanted Lane to see and hear how terrible the singers were, and they pretended they really liked the wannabe rock stars in order to piss Lane off and get him to join the band instead. The reverse psychology worked, and eventually Lane heard Destiny's call, and he was ready to hit the Seattle music scene with Cantrell, Starr, and Kenny in tow. Rolling Stone would write, the band fooled around with several incarnations, going glam for a while, and even gigging under the name Fuck. The band members would pass around Fuck the Band condoms as a publicity gimmick. Eventually, the lack of marquee value made them switch the band's name to Lane's previous side project, Alice in Chains, after receiving permission to use the name from the former band members. The band soon started to play in the Seattle area, often sharing bills with Mother Love Bone, garnering the attention of promoter Randy Hauser, who bankrolled a demo. Dubbed the Treehouse Tapes, the demo earned the attention of Soundgarden managers Kelly Curtis and Susan Silver, who passed it along to Columbia. The label signed Alice in Chains in 1989 and made them a priority, ushering the band into the studio with producer David Jordan, who had recently worked with Jane's Addiction. On August 21, 1990, Alice in Chains' debut studio album, Facelift, was released. The band quickly hit the road as the opening act for Iggy Pop and the album entered the Billboard charts in April 1991. Van Halen requested Alice in Chains as a tour opener in August, and in September, the album earned its first gold record. It would later earn two platinum certifications. Despite the band's huge success, the members of Alice in Chains behind the scenes were in emotional turmoil. Mike Starr was forced out of the band in January 1993 due to his drug addiction. The band's next album, Jar of Flies, debuted at number one on the Billboard charts. Alice in Chains immediately rose to international fame, selling millions of records as part of the grunge movement along Seattle bands such as Soundgarden, Nirvana, and Pearl Jam. By the early 90s, Lane Staley was officially a rock star, but no matter how hard he tried, his troubled childhood followed him around like a ghost. His feelings of abandonment that initially fueled his desire to be famous soon had become a noose around his neck. Lane channeled his pain into his songs as a way of expressing the hurt that he felt inside. It was his one obsession to stay alive, and for a while it worked and it was therapeutic. Music was his drug, until fate again stepped in and dealt him a deadly hand. Just as Allison Change started to take off, the man Staley expended so much energy and anguish thinking about, suddenly wanted to become a part of his son's life. The then 21-year-old singer was wary, but he still hoped seeing his dad would help fill the hole in his heart. But the relationship would not have a fairy tale ending. Although his father had been sober for six years, Lane was bothered by the fact that he didn't bother to come look for him until he saw his photo in a music magazine. 
The knowledge of this hurt Lane deeply, and even though the singer was in and out of rehab, he was desperately trying to stay clean. But his sobriety would be short-lived, and soon the toxic family dynamic pushed them to start using together. Lane found himself in a miserable situation. His father started visiting him daily, and instead of supporting his desire to get clean, he used Lane for money to buy smack and then encouraged him to get high with them. It became a vicious cycle. Another karmic relationship that played a pivotal role in his downward spiral was his girlfriend, Demri, a beautiful petite girl with long dark hair and brown eyes. Friends described her as charming and kind, who was passionate and artistic. The couple first met at a store called Saturdays, where Demry worked. It was love at first sight for Lane. The two went out on a few dates, and she immediately fell in love with him too. Friends and bandmates thought they were perfect for each other, and often referred to them as soulmates. However, if the stories are true, when these two met, a match was lit and set fire to a karmic tale that told a story of incredible love and terrible sorrow. The cosmic connection between Lane and Demri was fused by his moon and sensitive Pisces, conjunct her son and Pisces. In his mind, she was the perfect girl for him, and there was nothing he wouldn't do for her. However, her moon and Taurus squared his son and proud Leo, and it shows she took his love and devotion for granted. Saturn played a heavy role in their relationship, and as deep as their feelings may have been for one another, their astrological charts show a destructive element to the romantic relationship that would soon turn deadly. Many people have stated they believe Demry was Lane's initial gateway into heroin, but his family had a history of addiction, so it would be unfair to solely place the blame on her. However, like many heartbreaking love stories, some relationships will bring out the worst in you, others bring out the best, and then there are those remarkable, rare, addictive ones that are life-changing and traumatic in nature. I believe this describes Lane and Demry's romantic connection. For a few years, they were madly in love. Demry was amused for Lane, and they even got engaged. However, in the years that followed, fame and drugs would eventually drive a wedge between the couple, and they began to drift apart. In early 1994, Lane's desire to be clean and sober became stronger, and he wanted Demry to get help as well. It was around this time he decided to apply some tough love and cut her off financially to curb her addiction. He believed that she would quit doing drugs and they could finally get married after a three-year engagement. However, the opposite occurred, and Demry's desire for drugs was greater than her love for Lane, and she cut off complete contact with him. During that time frame, Lane was on the cusp of a Saturn return, which is an astrological karmic period where you will reap what you have sown. For the singer, he was constantly trying to swim upstream, but after Demry left him, he would continue to be hit with one setback after another. Later that summer in 1994, the day before the start of a tour with Metallica, Rolling Stone would write, 
Alice nearly reached the end of their chain. At the time, Staley was in the throes of full-blown heroin addiction, and Kinney was struggling with the bottle. Cantrell would say, We had been way too close for too long, and we were suffocating. We were like four plants trying to grow in the same pot. Things continued to get worse for Alice in Chains, and the tour was canceled. The band decided to go on hiatus for a period of six months. In the months following their split, the band members went through the stages of grief that accompany loss, denial, anger, depression, and finally, acceptance. At first, I was dumbfounded, Staley would state in the Rolling Stone interview, mumbling like someone awakened by a late-night phone call. I just sat on my couch staring at the TV and getting drunk every day. When we first got together as a band, we were all brothers. We lived in the same house and partied together and drank as much as each other. But then we started to split apart and went different ways, and we felt like we were betraying each other. After the band split, many friends stated they believed that Staley was intimidated by Kentrell, and they were having musical differences fueled by addiction. However, I view it more of a sibling rivalry, and Lane was much more sensitive than Jerry. Both bandmates had tremendous love and respect for one another, but Staley had abandonment issues and desperately wanted his bandmates' love and approval. Cantrell, a Pisces, appeared to have access to the mysteries of the universe and channeled that energy into his music. Staley, a Leo, had an innate ability to know exactly what everyone was thinking in the room and was an incredible storyteller. But the Alice in Chains frontman was finally at a loss for words, too dope sick to sing anymore as he continued his lonely roller coaster ride of sobriety and addiction. Lane Staley came into this world with the life path number eight, which represents incredible power, strength, and the ability to gather immense wealth. However, his soul would be clouded by emotional ties with complicated relationships. The number eight represents karma and carries within it the universal law of truth, that is cause and effect. As you reap, so shall you sow. The eight vibration is the great equalizer and a force that can easily create as it destroys. After a string of canceled tours and trips to rehab during the early 90s, Lane Staley's downward spiral of depression and drug use had accelerated by 1996. When he performed his last show with Alice in Chains on July 3rd in Kansas City as the supporting act for KISS, despite his frailty, Diffuser.fm would write the band couldn't resist the opportunity to share the bill with the original lineup of KISS, who hadn't toured in more than a decade. It was hands down the tour of 1996, and Alice in Chains was booked as the opening act for the first four shows. Ironically, the slot initially went to Stone Temple Pilots, who pulled out due to their own singer Scott Weiland having drug problems. Alice in Chains' internal band chaos would continue, and shortly after the KISS concert, Lane Staley would suffer another emotional setback when he overdosed and was hospitalized. 
However, the nail was firmly put in the coffin just three months later when his ex-fiancee, Dembry, passed away on October 29, 1996, due to heart complications related to her prior drug use. Alice in Chains manager, Susan Silver, was tasked to deliver the tragic news to Lane, who was so distraught he had to be placed on suicide watch. A year later, Lane, haunted by the memories of his ex-girlfriend, sold his Queen Anne home and bought a condo in the University District of Seattle, determined to distance himself from the world around him, and even changed his phone number in hopes of finally getting sober. Staley almost performed live again in 1998. Alternative Nation would write, When Cantrell rolled into Seattle on his solo tour for Boggy Depot, it was Halloween night in 1998, and Staley was backstage as a guest. Cantrell reportedly asked Staley to join him on stage, which would have been quite historic, but he declined. In his final interview in 2002 with Argentinian writer Adriana Rubio, a reflective Lane Staley appeared to be a broken man giving his last testament and how he knew the end was near. In his confessional, he states, I'm not doing well. Don't try to talk about this to my sister Liz. She will know it sooner or later. The most chilling passage of the interview reads like a suicide note. I know I'm near death, he said. I did crack and heroin for years. I never wanted to end my life this way. I know I have no chance. It's too late. This fucking drug use is like the insulin a diabetic needs to survive, he said. I'm not using drugs to get high like many people think. I know I made a big mistake when I started using this shit. It's a very difficult thing to explain. My liver is not functioning and I'm throwing up all the time and shitting my pants. The pain is more than you can handle. It's the worst pain in the world. Dope sick hurts the entire body. The remainder of the interview, Lane spoke of his feelings of abandonment and how he felt his Alice in Chains bandmates were no longer his friends. However, he stated he remained close to his mom and sisters over the years, but his relationship with his father continued to be complicated. The father-son reunion was not what he had hoped, and Lane expressed bitterness towards the fact that his dad had successfully kicked his heroin habit, but he had not been so lucky. As a young child, Lane always knew he wanted to be a rock star, but not for the fame and glory, but in hopes that his father would return home. His years of chasing the dragon had finally caught up with him. And although self-aware of the karmic ties he shared with his family and bandmates, he could not escape the death sentence that awaited him just a few short months later. On April 4th, 2002, Mike Starr would pay one last visit to his dear friend to celebrate his 36th birthday with his old bandmate. According to David DeSola's book, Alice in Chains, The Untold Story, Staley told Starr he believed that the ghost of his late girlfriend, Demry, who had died in 1996, had visited him the night before. The two former bandmates were watching TV and Lane was flipping through the channels and stumbled on the John Edwards show, Crossing Over, where he communicates with the dead. While watching Crossing Over, Lane turned to Mike and said, Demery was here last night. I don't give a fuck if you fucking believe me or not, dude. I'm telling you, Demery was here last night. 
final reunion between Mike and Lane was turbulent. They argued, presumably over the singer's refusal to get help. And Starr would later say Staley even threatened to end their friendship if he called 911 to get him help. In a karmic twist of fate, Mike, who was also high, stormed out of the apartment after a heated verbal exchange, with Lane calling out to him as he was leaving, asking him not to leave, saying, not like this, don't leave like this. This would be the last time Starr would see his dear friend alive. Two weeks later, an 86-pound Staley would be found by his mother, dead on his couch, surrounded by drugs, with a syringe in his leg and another loaded needle in his hand. After his death, Demry's mother, Kathleen Austin, later heard the story of Mike Starr's painful last visit with Lane and relayed her thoughts to David DeSola, and it was corroborated by Jason Butino about his passing. She said she believes Demry was there that night to be with Lane and comfort him as he crossed over to the afterlife. In April 1995, Lane Staley would tell Pandemonium magazine, I don't think any drug that can cause brain damage, failing kidneys, hardening arteries, pain, and suffering should be made available. Drugs are not the way to the light. They won't lead to a fairy tale life. They only lead to suffering. Seven years later, his words would come back to haunt him, and the life of the troubled singer would not have a happy ending. After Lane's lifeless body was found in his home on Friday, April 19th, his mother sat down next to her son and told him how sorry she was that his life had ended this way. After the tragic news of his death, Allison Chains would release a statement via MTV News. They said, It's good to be friends and family as we struggle to deal with this immense loss and try to celebrate this immense life. We are looking for all the usual things, comfort, purpose, answers, something to hold on to, a way to let him go in peace. Mostly, we are feeling heartbroken over the death of our beautiful friend. He was a sweet man with a keen sense of humor and a deep sense of humanity. He was an amazing musician, an inspiration, and a comfort to so many. He made great music and gifted it to the world. We are proud to have known him, to be his friend, and to create music with him. For the past decade, Lane struggled greatly. We can only hope that he has at last found some peace. We love you, Lane, dearly, and we will miss you endlessly. A couple of days after he died, hundreds of Allison Chains fans gathered at Seattle Center's International Fountain to pay tribute to the fallen singer. Lane's parents and sister gathered around the fountain, talking with friends and hugging fans who loved the singer so much. Phil Staley would tell the newspaper, Seattle Post-Intelligencer, The family knew Lane had a demon, his father said. Believe me, we ached along with him every single day. The singer's funeral was held on April 28, 2002 at the Kiana Lodge on Bainbridge Island. The same spot Lane had once chosen to be his wedding venue to former fiancé Demry. 
The service was attended by his family and friends, along with his Alice in Chains bandmates. The band's manager, Susan Silver, and also Chris Cornell, as well as other musical artists. Chris Cornell, joined by Hearts, Anne, and Nancy Wilson, sang a rendition of the Rolling Stones' Wild Horses at the Funeral. They also performed the lovemonger song, Sand. His family would later cremate Lane's body, and his ashes remain with his mother to this day. Although Lane Staley's body was found on April 19, 2002, the coroner placed his death on April 5th, exactly eight years to the day that Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain killed himself, and one day after Mike Starr's birthday. A mere coincidence, perhaps, but for others who believe nothing is by chance, but everything is Hitsuin, Hitsuin meaning it is destiny or fate, as being the driving force behind the action. After Lane's death, his mom would tell Northwest Music Scene in an interview she began receiving letters and emails from people around the world, emotional messages sharing how her son had influenced their lives, heartbreaking notes outlining their own or a loved one's struggle with drug addiction. She's answered each and every one of them, not because of how Lane died, but because of how much he impacted people while he was alive. She believes the band, Alice in Chains, is even more relevant now, given the opioid crisis across our country. The purpose of the music, Lane would say, Mom, don't they listen to the words? The purpose of his music was to warn people, this is a trap, and it's a trap that even I can't get out of. He tried to warn people. With all of his money and all of his fortune and fame, he was in treatment ten times. He died at least five times that we know of. He was dropped off at a hospital, he had infections, and he was still writing, he was still warning people, he was still performing. For the band, they refused to perform together out of respect for Lane. However, in 2005, Alice in Chains would perform a benefit concert for victims of a tsunami, with several vocalists filling in for Staley. In an MTV interview, Kinney noted that the band used the reunion concerts to pay tribute to the songs and to Lane. In a 2010 interview on VH1 Celebrity Rehab with Lane Staley's mother Nancy, Mike Starr would tell her that he was with the singer the day he died and express regret for not calling 911 to help his friend. The interview ended with Starr apologizing to his mom, but she was insistent that neither she nor anyone else in the family blame Mike for Lane's death. She told him, Lane would forgive you, and he would say, Hey, I did this, not you. Sadly, on March 8, 2011, Mike Starr would be found dead of a drug overdose in Salt Lake City. A public memorial was held for him at Experience Music Project in Seattle on March 20, 2011. A private memorial was also held, which was attended by Starr's former bandmates Jerry Cantrell and Sean Kinney. In 2013, 
The Seattle Post reported that Staley's mom filed a lawsuit against the surviving members of Allison Chains over royalties owed to her son's estate and that the group had attempted to cut her out of any further payments. According to the lawsuit, an attorney representing the band told her in September 2012 that Staley's interest in Allison Chains' works was being liquidated and that the revenue-sharing agreement that had seen her paid over the past decade was being terminated. According to the lawsuit, the band has attempted to negotiate an equitable end to the business partnership. To that end, they hired an accountant to determine the value of Staley's share in the band, and they came up with the amount of $341,000. That amount is significantly less than the $705,000 they paid out to Staley's heirs since his death. Whether or not the lawsuit has been settled, we were unable to find any additional information about it. One of the final controversies for Hardcore Lane Staley fans is whether or not Adriana Rubio's book, Angry Chair, in the final interview with the singer is real or fabricated. Many believe parts are true and others feel like it was made up. However, David DeSola's book, Alice in Chains, The Untold Story, has been highly recommended by fans, saying it's an emotional read about the band's history and the singer's life and death. In the end, although Lane was one of the biggest rock stars in the world, before his death he had one simple wish— He told Revolver magazine that his greatest fear would be that he's 45 and living alone. He stated he hoped to find someone that he could fall in love with and have children. He expressed how much he really wanted a family, and that was his number one goal. Unfortunately, Lane never got the chance to marry or have kids, but two months before his death, he had the opportunity to reconnect with his family after his nephew Oscar was born. His stepfather said the family had not seen him for some time, but Lane seemed calm and serene when he visited and held little Oscar, and he was proud to be his uncle. Over 17 years later after his death, Lane Staley will always be remembered as having one of the most distinct and powerful voices in rock and roll. He had an ability to evoke painful heartache, isolation with his confessional lyrics, and soulful but haunting delivery in every song he sang. Lane's mother, Nancy McCallum, seeking to turn the tragedy of her son's death into hope for those that suffer, she established his website, lane-staley.com. It provides support, education, and encouragement for addicts in heroin recovery. And it creates a place for family, friends, and fans to stay connected for the common goal of sharing information and resources for sustained recovery. The Lane Staley Fund, started by his mother, continues to honor his memory and the musical gift he left behind. Every year on or around his birthday, A tribute show is held in Seattle to celebrate his life and fans come to honour his legacy. Lane Staley, a voice of a generation whose light continues to shine bright.
Death by Misadventure was produced by Cosmic Media and written by me, JC Nova. Our supernatural team of co-hosts includes the talented Eduardo Fahey in London, Tom Dre, our master numerologist and paranormal investigator in L.A., Paul Robinson, magi and musician in Marin, and myself, I'm a psychic astrologer and paranormal investigator in Los Angeles and San Francisco. This episode was recorded at Robin Sound Studios in Marin, California, and also at Union Recording Studio in West Hollywood, California. Kudos to sound engineers Paul Robinson and Noah Shanklin. A special thanks to audio producer Christopher Lang in Tucson, who brings each episode to life, and Paulina from Upper Planet in London. She's responsible for the super cool design of our official website. She's also the designer for one of our favorite true crime podcasts, Case File. Please like and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash death by misadventure podcast. Each episode is available for download direct via our website at deathbymisadventure.co.uk and also at iTunes, Google Play, CastBox, Spotify, Podbean, TuneIn, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Last but not least, our podcast is hosted by Libsyn. I'm JC Nova, and this has been Death by Misadventure. Thanks for listening. <laughs>